The Centre for Asian Philanthropy and Society released its Doing Good Index last month, a first-of-its-kind study looking at factors that affect philanthropy in the social sector. Joining me now to discuss charitable giving in Hong Kong is Mevesh Ahmed, Director of Research at the Centre for Asian Philanthropy and Society. Good morning, Mevesh. Morning. So can you tell me a bit about the Centre for Asian Philanthropy and Society? What does it do? Absolutely. The Center for Asian Philanthropy and Society is a research and advisory organization uh, with the goal of improving and increasing both the quality and the quantity of philanthropy across Asia. And we look at most of Asia, all the way from South Asia to the Southeast, East Asia, North Asia, North Asia, including Hong Kong. You've published the Doing Good Index 2018, tracking private social investment and philanthropy across 15 Asian economies. What did it find for Hong Kong? So the Doing Good Index actually is a first-of-its-kind study that maps the environment for charitable giving and private social investment across Asia. And we found – we had three big findings, and all of them apply to Hong Kong. One is that with the right policies in place, Asia-wide, if people were to contribute up to 2% of their GDP towards charitable and philanthropic donations, we could generate $507 billion dollars in resources. Now, that's 11 times the foreign aid that's flowing to Asia. It's also a third of the annual global price tag of achieving the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals uh, across the board. And given that Hong Kong has about 18% of its population still living below the poverty line, and um, although it does not have the level of need that some of the other more resource-constrained economies in Asia do, it could absolutely use and utilize some of those resources. So that's one. The second is that um, regardless of income level, the right policies really matter in Asia. Asian governments, philanthropists and companies tend to work together. And that is very true in Hong Kong also. So if the Hong Kong government were to signal support for giving by, say, increasing the tax deductions, um, by putting in regulations in place that encourage and nurture the social sector, philanthropists and social sector organizations will follow suit. So in Asia, the right policies matter. And finally, the need for this kind of an index, which um, not only generates and creates data about the philanthropic landscape, but also charts a path for each economy to follow in order to improve its standing, is greater now when new wealth is being created at a faster pace in Asia and in Hong Kong than at any other time before. And what are the reasons why people don't make charitable donations in Hong Kong? Oh, that's not true at all. People absolutely make charitable donations in Hong Kong. We just found that Hong Kong has not yet, along with other Asian economies, not yet maximized the potential for charitable donations. So um, Hong Kong actually did see an almost... 100% increase in tax-deductible charitable donations, according to government sources, uh, over the last decade. Uh, But the fact is that this number can increase by much more if the policies and the steps being proposed in the Doing Good Index were to be followed. So how do we make sure that the money that we donate has the maximum impact? Well, Hong Kong prides itself on being a very business-friendly environment. And a lot of wealth that has been created in Hong Kong has been through business. And businessmen and women like to say that they perform due diligence. So as uh, applying the same attitude towards charitable donations and philanthropy is commendable, um, 
anyone who wants to give to charity and engage in philanthropy should do their due, due diligence. Mm-hmm. And this is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that the government, through the right policies, can make it easier for this kind of information to flow between social sector organizations and philanthropists by putting in annual rec- reporting requirements, for example, by making available a full, complete registry of organizations that are registered as charities. So it's b- with, with both philanthropists and people who want to give and the government um, sort of shining light on the path to giving, uh, giving can increase. So where does Hong Kong stand overall in, in Asia in terms of charitable giving? So in terms of the enabling environment for charitable giving, I just want to clarify that we don't look at the level of giving. Uh, that would be a separate study. Uh, we look at how easy is it to give and how efficient is it to give and to receive. So uh, you can think of Asian economies falling into four clusters and we can conceive of those clusters as stages, as distance left to travel towards a truly nurturing and stable environment for giving and receiving of philanthropic donations. Um, the first cluster are those economies that are doing well, and that includes Singapore, Taiwan, and Japan. Hong Kong falls in the second cluster, along with Korea and along with Thailand, Vietnam, uh, a few other Southeast Asian nations, and Sri Lanka. And then after this cluster are those economies like India and China that are seeing uh, a lot of change where policy is in flux. Uh, and the rear is then brought up with Indonesia and Myanmar, which have the longest distance to travel yet. So you see, Hong Kong is doing reasonably well. It is not doing as well as it can. Um, it is one of uh, the few high-income economies that are in the second cluster. Um, and with the right policy, policies in place, Hong Kong can absolutely uh, become reach uh, the goal of a sustained and supported charitable sector quite quickly. So people listening to this program may hear this and think, I would like to make a charitable donation or perhaps increase the donations I'm already making. How do they go about doing that? What are the considerations they should take into account? Um, Well, they can consider finding what are the causes that motivate them. That would be the first so step. causes that you believe causes in and feel that you passionate in. about. Um, another way of approaching this would be to identify the needs and the gaps that mm. are um, in, in, in Hong Kong and, um, you know, finding your chart, your charting a course to the cause that you're passionate about through addressing a, a needs gap. Mm. Um, a second step then would be to do some due diligence about these organizations. And I would actually urge Hong Kongers to absolutely give to the well-known, well-established organizations, Mm. but also look at the newer or less well-established organizations. There's a lot of flux in the Hong Kong social sector right now. There's a lot of new types of organizations coming Mm. up, including social enterprises that can actually uh, meet social sector needs quite well. So I would urge Hong Kongers to keep an open mind. And should you go and visit these charities first if you can? And maybe even donating time is just as useful as donating money sometimes, isn't it, to some of these causes? No, absolutely. And we found in the Doing Good Index survey that almost 90% of the social delivery organizations that we surveyed actually use volunteers. Hmm. So Hong Kongers are giving their time to this sector, which is great. Um, and resources can flow to this sector uh, in the form of time or in the fo- form of money. Um, in a city like Hong Kong, it's relatively easy to visit. Um, the point, though, is that with the right regulatory policies and reporting channels in place, one should not need to visit. 
And the flip side of that is that organizations can make use of websites to actually convey and communicate a lot of the information that a donor and a philanthropist would need in order to make an informed de- decision about where to donate. Mavish, thank you very much indeed. If you were born in the year of the dog 60 years ago, then you'll now be approaching retirement. Our listener Michael was born in 1958, an earth dog year. He met with Jimmy Lamb and shared his financial concerns around his impending retirement. I'm a civil servant and based on the contract, I'm going to retire at the age of 60. And since the retirement is mandatory, I cannot choose to stay on after age 60. Right, so have you thought about what to do during your retirement? Uh, I don't think I really think about that too much. Although it's like coming soon, but I'm not sure if I should find another job in the private sector or just just chill the rest of my life or do right. nothing. Right, because I guess you have a pension plan. Yes, place, yes, so. I have a pension plan, but I still have to figure out what to do in my spare time, but I have no plan yet for now. Okay, so all we want to know about your pension <laughs> package, I guess it's quite good for civil servant, right? Yeah, I think it's pretty common. Like civil servant package is like usually quite good, but I don't know how to choose uh, between two plans. So, so I got two options. Right. So plan A is like I can get around thirty grand a month until death, or I can get like a two million upfront and then get around ten grand per month till death. Right. So it sounds like a mess problem. Then. Uh, yeah, it sounds like a really difficult decision because I don't know how long I'm going to live. So I need to like make some plans or like make some assumption right. and I hope I bet on the right plan right so. yeah it involves like kind of present value of the money correct and, correct and those finance stuff right um, so but do you think your retirement package is uh, enough to support your living well I think the money is enough for myself but I mean I don't know if I, it's enough for my family that includes my wife and my older mother okay so you want to support uh, both of them financially, I think. Yes, absolutely. Because like my mom is like age 90s now, and she recently got a bit sick, so I need to probably cover some medical costs and stuff like that, and insurance and all the stuff, hospital charges and stuff. And yeah. I also take, I try to take as much holidays as possible to accompany her to see doctors and go to checkup, body checkups, and all the, the related medical stuff. But she lost, like she also lost some ability to support her daily living, like going to the toilet, the shower, and stuff. So I need to help her with that as well. And my wife is like retiring soon, and she's gonna work in the. I mean, she, right now she's working in the private sector. So once she retired, there's no pension for her. So my parents need to share with her as well. Right. So um, I guess another question is: uh, Have you thought about how to um, allocate your asset? Um, like any plan to change it around uh, for your retirement? I don't think I really think about it yet, but I, I'm going to ask around and ask for like some advice and stuff from my peers or friends. And Right. And uh, what what the financial situation like for you right now? Uh, right now, I got like one property in hand, which is like the place we're living. And most of our, our savings are in Chinese dollar, Chainsuan. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I, we put it in mainland China's like bank branch because okay. it gives a higher interest rate than putting in Hong Kong bank so we, we put there like many many years ago because like Chinese yuan was like appreciating so that makes sense 
Okay. Um, so we have got a advisor coming up uh, next after we, we uh, talk here. So uh, what kind of questions do you have for uh, our advisor? I think first off is like I have plenty of time. I don't know what to do with my time. So I would like to like I, I mean I'm worried about like being bored and lonely staying at home, and I don't have a lot of. I mean, I don't have a regular schedule anymore to go to work at 9 a.m. and finish work at 5. And some of my friends got retired, and I know they got depression afterwards because they stay home all the time and try to find stuff to do, but they don't really have anything to do. So I don't know if I should find a job or do some charity work or volunteer work or do find my hobbies afterwards. And I really, I also don't really know how to choose my retirement package, like I mentioned, like financially. Mm. So I would love... To have some advices on those situations, as well, and also I don't know like how to change my asset allocation and investment strategy with my pension and also my property. So I would love to get some help on that as well. You just heard there from Money Talk Extra listener Michael with some questions as he prepares for his retirement. Jimmy Lamb went to speak to Philip Law, founder of Home Affairs Blog, to get some answers. Okay, uh, regarding to the two charges Michael has to make. Uh, that is receive a higher monthly income or receive some upfront cash first and receive a lower monthly income. Uh, I would advise him to choose to go for getting the upfront cash option first mm, because it gives Michael more flexibility of how to handle the money uh, um, instead of relying on the government to give him the monthly pay. Also, uh, because of the present value of money, if you discount the future cash flow you received, the current money value may not be as high as receiving the big lump sum now. Because of the two reasons, uh, I think uh, getting cash upfront is more beneficial. Right, for Michael's case. And uh, what would you advise? Um, so if he chooses that plan to receive some money up front, so what would you advise him to do with that? Oh, okay. There are a lot of products in the market Michael can choose to invest. Uh, but of course, he would need to choose some less risky items um, and also invest into some liquid products like something convertible to cash. Uh, so he can use it very easily, especially he said he needs to support his family. Right, yeah. So um, what options do you think? Can you give us some example? Oh, okay. Uh, one investment option Michael can consider uh, is the annuity schemes. The government uh, announced its own scheme, I think, around uh, April last year, and they said it will officially be launched in July this year. Mm, investment can choose you to have invest between uh, I think uh, fifty thousand to one million dollars, or oh, of course Hong Kong, Hong Kong dollars. But the age requirements is sixty five years old or above. So Michael cannot invest into right, the yeah. because he's just sixty right now. Oh. But, but something he can consider though. Okay, right. so and in later years. Okay, example, yeah. but of course he cannot. Uh, if you say uh, he is just not 60. yet, not yet sixty-five. Right? Okay, yeah. so so I think uh, uh, he can he can invest the annuity scheme the government now, but there should be a lot of uh, similar products of offered by the other insurance company. So Michael can have uh, another annuity incomes on top of his own retirement plan. And I mean, how should uh, Michael compare between making those uh, choices? Do you think? 
Oh, okay. Uh, Michael should consider carefully if the product's features suit his needs. For example, the public annuity scheme I just said has some subtle difference when comparing with time deposit because a buyer cannot get back their initial investment at the end. And if you want to terminate or you change your mind and want to switch from one products to another, you may consider pay some penalty charge. So think about how long you will invest in the products. I mean the duration as well as the terms and conditions of early determination. So we mentioned about um, how to manage the money, and I guess um, psychological or mental part, uh, well-being of investment life is also very important, isn't it? Oh, of course. If yes, every human sometimes and like a Roblox. I mean, like we need to have some kinds of schedule, uh, like going to work. So uh, it is very important for Michael to start thinking about how to schedule his day before he actually retires. Mm, okay, I would recommend Michael to uh, draft his schedule like oh, when to wake up, what to do in the morning, in the afternoon, and of course as detailed as, as possible. Uh, he can also undertake some interest courses, some dreams he was not able to pursue before. Right, and um, apart from that, any other advice you have for uh, Michael? Mm. Mm, mm, of course, uh, I think uh, we should be aware of some some bad peoples. Uh, one thing that retired people pay a lot of attention is that uh, it's about health. They're, they may do a lot of research on what to buy, uh, like healthy food, vitamin, etc., which is good as health is getting more important as you grow older. But some people would target some uh, retired one to persuade them to buy or even invest in buying or reselling the healthy products. They may say they have easy access to those products and guarantee very high returns to attract you. Uh, very often, they are not doing good things. But <laughs> right. Yes, but they, they indeed they target your pocket. So please stay alert to these, these people, yes. That was Philip Law, founder of Home Affairs Blog. We're going to continue now with our series of teach-ins about some common investment products. This week, we're going to take a look at convertible bonds. And to help us understand them, here's Tariq Dennison, Portfolio Manager at GFM Asset Management. Good morning, Peter. So what's a convertible bond? A convertible bond is like any other type of bond, a security you buy where, say, for $1,000, you get the promise to get $1,000 back later. But instead of getting a fixed rate of interest, you get the chance to convert your bond into shares of a company later on at a fixed price. So why would a company issue a convertible bond? Well, the main reason companies issue convertible bonds is if they were to have to offer a fixed rate of interest, they may have to pay a very, very high interest rate because they may mm. be viewed as a very high-risk company. But because they're a very high-risk company, many investors may also say there's a lot of upside if we own stock in the company. So they may investors are very attracted to the idea that instead of interest, they get upside in the shares of the company rising, but then they still get the guarantee if the stock goes down. So this is a more cautious way maybe of investing in those companies than just buying the 
the shares outright? Well, it has what's called the bond floor. So yes, on the downside, there's there's more protection compared with just buying the shares outright. But it's certainly they're certainly not as safe as just buying a plain old bond by a safer issuer. Mm. And why should investors consider convertible bonds then? What are the attractiveness of them for investors? Well, it certainly depends on which investors you're talking about. Convertible bonds are probably most attractive to convertible arbitrage hedge funds who can actually price the volatility and price the options embedded in them Mm. and figure out how to arbitrage them out by buying the convertible bond, selling the stock short, and then realizing the volatility between the two. But everyday investors really would just look at it as a simple instrument for participating in the upside of a stock and limiting the downside if the stock doesn't rise or uh, or falls down by about 50%. So when is a good time then to invest in convertible bonds? Uh, well, generally the good time to invest in convertible bonds is when a lot of people are afraid of the issuer. So generally the debt of the issuer is trading at a deep discount, uh, but they, their investors may not be valuing uh, the upside of the company very much, and so the convertible bonds are trading uh, trading very very cheaply. Um, you know, ideally, you would like to be able to buy a convertible bond at ninety, and then later redeem it at one hundred and twenty when the stock rises. Mm. But uh, part of that note is is it's a good time to buy a convertible bond the same time that it's a good time to buy the stock. So let's go into a little bit about the pricing of these because it's really a bond with an option embedded in it. We've talked about options before on this program in in this particular segment. So they have a conversion ratio, don't they, convertible bonds? Exactly. What what does that mean? So what that means is for every, say, $1,000 or $100,000 of a bond, how many shares of a a certain stock could it convert into? So let's say a $100,000 bond that can convert into – um, say a thousand shares of a stock has an effective conversion price or strike price of a hundred dollars per share. That means if the stock rises above that break-even price, you will want to convert the bond into shares of stock. If, on the other hand, the the price of the stock is below that conversion price, below that break-even price, you're not going to convert. Instead, you're going to get your hundred thousand dollars back. Okay. And do companies have the right to call the bond? Well, if so, it's written into the bond contract in the beginning. Yes, many uh, convertible bonds are callable. Uh, here in Asia, I've seen many that are not, where they're, where they're simply straight options. Whenever the issuer has the right to call the bond, the investor often demands either a more attractive conversion rate or mm. an otherwise higher yield on the bond to compensate for that call. Because you don't really want the issuer to go and call that bonds, do you? you well, when they, when they call the bond, it's going to be when it's most beneficial yes. for them. Either their credit has improved and they can refinance at a lower rate or their stock has gone up a lot and they want to call back and make sure that, uh, that you don't get much of the benefits before. But generally, uh, convertible bonds that are callable give you the right to convert them right before the call. Effectively, what that does is it accelerates the maturity of the bond rather than making you lose that entirely. So what sort of things affect the price of a convertible bond? Ah, well, this is where convertible bonds are one of my favorite in- instruments because I often say is if you to price a convertible bond, you need to know how to price bonds and you need to know how to price equity. Uh, first of all, it's the credit of the underlying since still ultimately you're pricing what is the probability that the issuer will pay you back even if mm. the stock goes down. You're also looking at what's the underlying stock price because if I have the right to convert the stock at $100 a share and it's currently trading at 80 it's not going to be as valuable than if the stock is currently trading at 120 The more, The harder thing for most investors to price and this is where convertible arbitrage hedge funds make their money is in the underlying volatility of the stock. A stock that has the ability of moving a lot, say doubling or getting cut in half in a year, is going to have a much more valuable convertible bond than a stock that simply doesn't move because there's more of a chance that that convertible bond, that conversion will be valuable. So interest rates are going up 
around the world. How do convertible bonds tend to perform in a rising interest rate environment? Well, that's another thing that makes them somewhat more attractive. They're not as immediately sensitive to interest rates as plain old um, uh, plain old government bonds, in part because convertible bonds, the credit is usually a high-yield bond. And high-yield bonds, when rates go up, typically credit spreads tighten. Hmm. So for the bond component, that by itself is less volatile. But for many convertible bonds, when they're in the money, so when – the, they're, they're above the conversion price, they're far more affected by the stock price than they are by the underlying interest rate. And if the stock price falls, do they tend to perform better than if I was invested in the ordinary shares of the company? So uh, n- something not to, con- to confuse with the, con- with the conversion ratio is what's something called the hedge ratio. So this is uh, if, let's say, for example, $100,000 worth of the stock were to rise by 1%, what percentage would the bond rise? Mm-hmm. And so very often if the stock is trading at the conversion price, the hedge ratio would be somewhere around 0.5, mm-hmm. meaning for every 1% rise in the stock, the convertible bond would rise or fall by half a percent. When the uh, convertible bond is well in the money, so the stock price is well above the conversion limit, the hedge ratio is closer to one. The two trade more and more in lockstep. But if the conversion price is well out of the money, so if the, the stock would have to rise in order for it to be convertible, then the two don't move quite as much at all. The stock may rise 1%. The bond may rise 0.2%. And where do they trade? Uh, they trade over the counter like many other bonds. M- many convertible bonds are not listed on a stock exchange and usually the best way that everyday investors can access them uh, is simply by buying an ETF that tracks them. I'm still waiting for a nice uh, convertible bond ETF to be listed here in Hong Kong but there uh, there is an active one traded in the US. So is that the best way if I want to invest in convertible bonds, an ETF or a fund of some sort that does it for you? Well, it really depends again on what type of investor you are. If you're really plugged in and you get really good tight pricing on bonds from your, from your bond dealer, then of course you can trade the bonds directly. But for many everyday investor, bond investors here in Hong Kong, I find that the spreads charged by banks are very, very wide. And very often for individual investors, it's better to trade the ETF than to try to pay the high spreads every time they get in and out of a bond. Tariq, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me, Peter. That was Tariq Dennison, Portfolio Manager from GFM Asset Management.